Hello everyone, my name is João and I'm the host of Software Crafts Podcast. Today with us we have Matthew, which is a software delivery consultant based on Leeds UK. He is the head of consultancy at Conflux, where he helps organizations to design and optimize their teams for effective software delivery using team topologies, which by the way is a co-author. He also specializes in applying continuous delivery and operability techniques for software in manufacturing, e-commerce and services, online services, including cloud IoT and embedded software. Hello, Matthew, and thanks for your time to be here. Hi, Joe. It's great to be here. Thank you. Thanks. So let's go right uh, to it with the heuristic for today. And today we have a very simple one, but I can imagine that will take lots of conversation. And the heuristic is eliminate waste. What do you think about this? It's a nice question, and it means lots of different things to different people. Um, so if you're, if you're not familiar with some of the um lean manufacturing principles from toyota for example if you're not familiar with that or you've only vaguely heard of it then you think eliminate waste okay um, therefore we need to cut out anything that is uh not um effective not 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 quick um and so on and so and, and typically that ends up being a cost cutting exercise and this is where a lot of um a lot of organizations have been in this kind of mode for many, many years. I mean, since the early 20th century, at least, if, if, not, if not earlier than that. This idea that, um, we're, that, that, that eliminate waste be, becomes about cutting costs. Um, and to an extent, in kind of a manufacturing context from the 20th century, that was up to a point, a reasonable way of doing certain things, but only up to a certain point. Um, because then if we're just looking to uh, identify what we think of as costs and reduce them, we end up reducing the organizational capability because we're treating, and, and the, the typical thing in, in sort of from my experience and from my world is uh, in the past, um, typically the kind of operations part of an IT organization was seen as a cost center. Uh, and we're seen as not adding any value, was just seeing as, well, let's try and drive the cost down as much as possible. And, uh, and that's, where, that's what led to this, the, this, this kind of uh, incredible ineffectiveness in, in IT uh, over, over kind of many years. Um, and ultimately, the, the kind of DevOps movement starting in around about 2008 uh, sought to address because the idea of, of certainly the operations part as a, as a cost center is it led to all sorts of um, very ineffective behavior. Um, ultimately led bizarrely to a lot of waste, which, which a lot of these organizations were trying to remove um, in a kind of naive sort of way. Um, and so now we've got, we've kind of DevOps has evolved and we, we've kind of to some extent gone beyond just the relationship between kind of the development side and the operation side. We're thinking about the, the bigger picture. And that, that's kind of partly what we did with the Team Topologies book, is to look at the the the, the value flow, uh, at least within the technology organization. And actually, some people have taken the Team Topologies book and have started to apply it outside of IT, which is really great. Um, but but the book is, at the moment, focused on on just the kind of technology part, really. Um, and so we're, we're looking at kind of a flow of value a flow of change uh, representing business valued across the whole um, kind of technology organization at least. And so to do that, 
we've got to um, we can't treat one group as a cost center uh, compared to another. Um, and so then because we've got a kind of end-to-end flow, because we've set up our teams in a way which enables them to have an end-to-end flow of change at all different kind of uh, multiple different levels of the organization, not just the customer-facing stuff, but kind of internal platforms and internal tooling as well, we've got the same principles at multiple different levels, then we can start using some principles from uh, from that relate more to flow and relate more to uh, some of the Toyota principles, e-manufacturing and so on. Um, there's a, so the, the Team Supporters book is published by IT Revolution. So this is headed by Gene Kim, who's the author of DevOps Handbook, uh, DevOps Handbook and Phoenix Project and, and so on. Uh, and he's got a great team around him. And one of the um, sibling books, one of the other books in the, in the IT Revolution family is called... Um, Project to Product by Mick Kirsten. Really, really great. So all the books in, in the IT Revolution family fit really well together, and that's, that's, that's testament to Gene Kim's uh, uh, kind of vision for, for, for how he wants to kind of shape uh, his, his collection of, the collection of books from IT Revolution. It's really great. So the, the, the book Project to Product from, uh, by Mick Kirsten talks about specific techniques to shift away from this kind of um, very quite naive mindset around kind of cost centers and projects and so on into an approach where we can start to measure things in terms of a flow of change. Then we can start to use some of these principles around eliminating waste, but, but that are informed from a flow perspective. So we start to think about, um, uh, we start to look at uh, uh, cues and wait, wait times, things like that. Um, which starts to speak more to the uh, to the Toyota Lean uh, approach in terms of eliminating waste. Um, we're not experts, so my my co-author and I are not experts in kind of uh, Toyota Lean approaches. So we do mention some of that stuff in Team Topology's book. The the project to product book goes into uh, some of that stuff in, in more detail. But certainly, our thinking in the Team Topology's was definitely informed by. Um, uh, things, things like the the project to product ideas, uh, um, books by people like Don Reinertsen who talk about uh, product development flow, um, and this this need to uh, remove handoffs between teams to enable a better flow of change, and thereby actually eliminating some waste as it happens. Cool. Thanks. Um, you it's gave- a very long answer. Sorry. <laughs> it is, but. It's fine as well because you you gave me lots of new questions, so this will yeah. be fun. Yeah. So um, one another thing that I observe is that lots of times we just look to 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 do local optimizations, and that is where we try to eliminate waste. And in the end, as you describe, you talk we start decreasing the organization capabilities. So from a big picture perspective someone could say that having waste on some parts of the company actually is beneficial for the whole system. Did you confirm or did you saw different experiences in your career? So it, obviously it very, diff- it very much depends on how you want to define waste. And so that you have to be, have a very, very clear understanding of what the definition is within an organization if you, before you start going about cutting things out. Um, for example, in... This goes back to uh, Don Reinertsen in Principles of Product Development Flow, for example. Uh, if you look at um, if you look at uh, systems that um, that are 
that have kind of uh, that are batched, and you have uh, multiple tasks assigned to uh, assigned to a team or or to 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 an individual. Um, as soon as you head beyond about eighty percent capacity on that person or system or whatever, then the wait time heads towards infinity. So as you load up something, whether it's a person or it's a kind of system, um, beyond the, it's, I mean, there's some mathematics involved and it depends on some of the figures, but roughly speaking, round about 80% is the highest load that you really should give when, you've, when you're trying to make sure you've got a high throughput. And that seems to some people wasteful because they try to load up all their teams with as much work as possible. And it's sort of intuitively the right thing to do, if you like, from a naive perspective. Oh, let's make sure we're getting the most effectiveness out of all our people. But because of the nature of the work, where we've got these kind of wait times and we've got kind of batches of stuff coming in and so on, if you load teams and and, and individuals to 100%, you'll be waiting, you'll effectively have huge long wait times. And so that, that ends up being a different kind of waste because the waste then becomes, uh, is situated in the waiting time. Everyone is waiting on someone else. So that then becomes, at an, at an organizational level, much more wasteful. Whereas if you reduce the, the loading on the the the, the um, if you if you make sure that people are never more than eighty percent run about eighty percent loaded, there'll be better throughput in the system. Yeah, cool. So so it's it's some of some of the kind of naive management methods um, of the past just are incredibly wasteful, incredibly ineffective at a kind of organization level, departmental level, incredibly ineffective. And so organizations that are succeeding in this space are starting to look at some of these principles and and concepts that actually these principles have been known for quite a while. They've been known for decades. And and the organizations that are actually starting to adopt these this way of um, thinking about the whole organization um, are the ones that are, are succeeding. And the organizations that just want to load everything up to 100% capacity all the time are the ones that are finding that they, they can't get anything done. It sounds counterintuitive, but there's some fairly fairly straightforward mathematics behind behind some of some of these dynamics. Yep, cool. And you you touch uh, a point, an interesting one that you talk about managers and management practices. So uh, team topologies is fairly new, but your work with the DevOps topologies is not, and you are a consultant, you see lots of things. Did you observe changes in the last 10 years or in the last year since the book came out with the management practices, or do we still, as an industry, have a long road to go? Since the book came out, we have seen some organizations adopt the ideas, and it's been really interesting to talk to those people and see how they've done it. Um, uh, so one one uh, company is called Pure Gym in the UK. They're the UK's largest gym operator, um, and uh, they they adopted the practices and principles and so on and found that really helpful. Um, another UK-based company is called Foot Asylum. They do uh, sneakers and sportswear and things, and, and they've had some similar uh, experiences, combining it with a few other techniques like Wardley mapping and so on. Um, uh, and but but the, these are organisations that have quite a, I guess, are open to quite a strong kind of engineering led approach to things. They're 
and 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 that's been, I guess, a, a key part of the uh, part of their success. They've been willing to take some uh, kind of suggestions and advice from kind of the engineering part of the organization and, and allow that to shape um, how the organization is set up and how the organization works in in terms of technology delivery. And that's and that that's really that's really helped them. For organizations, I mean, it, it's still early days, right? At the moment, it's less than a year since the book was published. So some of the some of the ideas take time to to, to change things. Um, uh, I think that um, the the management practices around this around these techniques. So the, the key technique we're really talking about is optimizing for flow. That's what we're really talking about. Optimizing flow plus feedback from running systems. That's what we're talking about. And so that as a design principle for an organization is, it's not unique. It's not actually that new. But what's new is the number of organizations that are now thinking about starting with the principle of flow as a starting point for their for, for how they think about their organization. Um I mean, the other thing in the book that, well, one other thing in the book uh, out of several that is, that seems to be very helpful for lots of organizations is the principles around limiting cognitive load for teams. And that seems to have been a really useful uh, kind of heuristic or, or clue, if you like, for how we should think about the relationship between teams. And so again, the practices around that are very new because the book again the book is only published less than a year ago so it, it's we'll have to see how some of these management practices uh evolve over over the coming kind of months and years um but certainly what we've found so far is that many people have said this feels really useful as a as a, a lens if you like as a way to look at the problem as a way to look at the the, the, the landscape of, of organizational effectiveness um uh, you know, from like CTOs and engineering managers and uh, team leads and architects and so on, they've, they've got lots of feedback that this this feels like a really useful way of uh, looking at this kind of problem that feels a bit new and fresh. Um, so we'll 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 see the management practices emerge um, over the over the coming months. Um, it will probably in- include a combination of the team topologies ideas plus domain driven design DDD. And things like Wardley mapping from Simon Wardley. And there's kind of techniques like this which help you to think about the purpose and remit of teams and whole departments. To When they're used together, they seem to be very powerful. Yep. Um, thanks for, for bringing this up. I will make sure that um, even those resources uh, are in the description to, to see if the community uh, get new advancements. Uh, thanks. And um, thanks for bringing Simon Wardley because also you talk about being um, effective, so uh, or being having efficiency. And if Simon Wardley talks about being efficient, uh, so take something and and be more uh, remove waste. And also the concept of being effective, right? Sometimes we just need to stop doing something and put our efforts in other sides. Mm. How do you see uh, this going in the real world? Are companies also prepared to keep observing and rather than trying to eliminate waste, to pivot to a different kind of things? I think we're starting to see this with, with organizations, yes. Um, 
in and that's partly because the landscape is changing so quickly. So the 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 business landscape, if you like, and but also the just the, the landscape in society. Things like coronavirus pandemic. You know, that's not going to be the last pandemic, right? That's this is going to be the first of several, uh, and the first of several. You know, with with uh, kind of uh, climate change and so on. Um, organizations are going to have to adapt on an increasingly rapid basis. Um, and the geopolitical system is is in a, is in a big change at the moment, where boundaries are being drawn around kind of countries and different groupings. Um, so there'll have to be adaptation to how business happens across national and international boundaries, um, and so organisations will need to be able to adapt, um, you know, quickly without too much pain. And so any kind of set of techniques which help the organisation to be to have situational awareness will really help those organizations. And Wardley mapping is a great example of, 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 the, of a, an approach which, which is exactly intended to, to, to uh, provide ongoing situ- situational awareness to, to an organization. Um, we were inspired by, by many of the ideas in, in Wardley mapping when we were writing a book, Team Topologies. So it's not surprising that, that, that there's a relationship between the two. And um, we're also... Uh, inspired by kind of the, the many of the concepts and practices in domain-driven design. So again, that, we talk about that in the book as well. Um, I mean, I had the realization that the other day that domain-driven design is really a kind of sense-making approach. It happens to be very useful for producing software as well, but the reason for that, really, if you can look at it from a from from one perspective, is it helps us to understand the meaning of what the organization is trying to achieve. And so it, it helps to clarify intent and direction and strategy and that kind of thing. And therefore, then we implement that in software. But actually, if you if the strategy and intent and direction of the organization is not clear, then you have no chance of building good software anyway. So you need to have that, need to have that kind of clarity. So it's, it's not surprising that these kind of techniques like that kind of come together uh, and, and companies are increasingly having to use these techniques because of the the more rapidly changing external um, uh, kind of geopolitical environment and business environment and so on. Cool. So we keep going around these new ones. So I have a follow-up question, perhaps best wishes, but do you see new social structures even inside of a company emerging, right? We have the, we had the famous Spotify model that, Spotify never implemented, but do mm-hmm. you see new um, bringing these techniques and be, bringing these focus, new social structures emerging inside of companies? Uh, yes, and I think there's, um, there's a few different interesting things here. One is obviously the, the COVID pandemic, and and particularly in, in kind of IT and software development and things, uh, it's possible to do a huge amount of that remotely. So with people working from home or or not coming into the office. And so that has really changed a lot of the dynamics uh, around this. Many large companies have said, we're not, we're going to close our offices and you'll be working from home for the foreseeable future and so on. So a lot of the assumptions that companies made in the past about groupings of people were all, were, were focused on physical office space. Which is fine, and and it actually it actually can be really valuable to to really design the office space in the building to 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 make 
certain kind of social groupings more effective. Uh, we talk about that in the book. There's some examples from from uh, from a couple of couple of companies where they've really thought about the office space design. But um, we now need to think about the kind of online space, and, and the online space is typically through a chat tool like Slack or Microsoft Teams or something like that, and that's now the space in which we interact. Um, and so, what does that mean? What does it mean to have a community of people in that kind of context? Um, it's, it's been interesting recently. We're doing some work with a, with a large client um, in Canada. And so their people are spread east coast, west coast uh, in Canada. And so that's, I think it's three hours, three or four hours time zone difference. Anyway, they're, they're, they're definitely, they only share part of the day. They're definitely not close physically, geographically. It's, it's very, very far away. But it's been interesting to see some of the um, some of the ways in which the organisation is building community inside this organisation. There's a there's a dedicated person who's there every day, kind of uh, generating conversation and generating pe- helping people to kind of share personal stories and, and interesting little jokes and stuff like this. And and that's not something you might have seen in the office before a person dedicated to doing that, but it's clear that that kind of investment is actually really valuable now. So someone who's there as a community builder, effectively, and that's, that's their role. That's at least part of their role. Um, and so we, we'll see some new, well, we'll see some approaches that, that are, are online first, effectively remote first, like this, which we may not have needed before because before people would meet each other in the, in the, in the kitchen, in the office, or in the canteen, in the office canteen and have food. Now that just, just maybe doesn't happen at all. So we have to find new ways of getting the same kind of community cohesion. There are obviously approaches um, that are well established, like um, community of practice. Um, so the person who's been uh, kind of leading the way in that recently in, in the in the IT space is Emily Weber. She's got a book around uh, building successful um, agile communities of practice, and Emily's actually done some research uh, with uh, Robin Dunbar, Professor Robin Dunbar, who is. Uh, whose name gave gave his name to this this concept of the Dunbar's number, which is kind of social groupings. And they actually did some research on the size of communities of practice inside organizations. Now this was pre-pandemic, so this was this was more when when we're when we're in physical offices. But there's some interesting research around different kind of grouping sizes for things like communities of practice. And I think we'll see some more research and investigation and exploration in this space in the context of, of a fully remote organization over, over the next, you know, over the coming years. It'll be interesting to see what emerges. It will be, indeed. Um, I also share the, the, the same view. This is the normal now. And um, although I see people saying, well, we will have less jobs, but you just gave an example of a new role, perhaps a new job, the, the person mm-hmm. that, the magician, keeps the, the, the conversation flowing, <laughs> as people say in deep democracy. So um, it's very, very interesting. And um, looking to the future, we talk about several techniques. We talk a little bit how teams or organizations can embrace team topologies, TDD, worldly mapping, to create an adaptive company. What do you forecast that is the next thing to join all the dots? Or are we at that point that we are joining all the dots? That's a good question. Um, 
certainly from what we've seen so far, this 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 combination of three things, team topologies, domain-driven design, and Wardley mapping really seems to be helping lots of organizations to join the dots, if you like. But but the important thing here is that these three techniques are um they're, they're, they're all exploratory techniques. They all help organizations to think and to reason about their situation and what needs to change. They're, they're all predicate. They're, they're all, they all have an important um, aspect, a sense in which the environment will change and you need to have an ongoing conversation. So the next thing to come along is probably going to be some kind of synthesis or some sort of um, a, a set of examples where these kinds of techniques not just these three, but other techniques too, have been used together to, to help increase the situational awareness of organizations. So we'll start to see some, some uh, increased awareness of how techniques like this come together and can be used and in which situation you should use them and which situation you might use something different. So I, I don't think there's necessarily a single next thing that comes along, but what we'll see is, is well, if there's a single next thing that, that becomes important or popular, it's probably an increasing awareness that techniques like this are important. But obviously the techniques like that need people to think on an ongoing basis and need, need people to adapt. That's kind of new. But lots of organizations have, are looking for a single static model to work with. Like we, we speak to organizations who have read, they might have read a bit of Team Topologies book and they go, okay, so tell me the, the perfect design for my organization. No, you've completely misunderstood <laughs> You have to be able. You have to expect to adapt this stuff to to the to the to the circumstances on an ongoing basis, and that's that's new. Effectively, this need for continual adaptation is 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 the realization that that is a thing is going to be effectively the next the next new thing. Cool. So we expect that there's emerging management practices in the future. I think. Yeah. Yep. So. You classified these parts as the exploratory techniques. How about also adding, for instance, chaos engineering on top of that to increase the feedback cycles uh, of these exploratory techniques? Have you thought about that? Yeah, it's a nice point. So we we, we, we we might mention chaos engineering briefly, but we don't really go into it very much in team topologies because it's more of a kind of technical practice. Um, but it's a, it's a good example of the kind of technique that needs to be part of an organization's toolkit. Because uh, and the reason why chaos engineering is is um, is important and growing in growing in popularity, if you like, is because the computer systems that we're building now are um, complex in a Kinevin sense. There are many many moving parts. There's many many actors, many agents, and some of whose um, behaviour can't be predicted or controlled. And so we have what is a complex system and it's adaptive because the, the, the behavior of different parts of that system will change depending on the behavior of other parts. And so, um, I mean, contrast that to even, um, even just 10 years ago when I was, when I was, uh, actively building, uh, uh systems, uh, when I was based in London and, you know, we, we built a website for, um, for a major kind of, uh, mobile telecoms brand. Uh, in the Middle East, and we ran the whole website on on three servers, well, four servers. That was it. Four four virtual machines running in a data center somewhere. That was it. That's that's a fairly straightforward system. It might it might be complicated, but it's not complex. But now the kind of systems we're talking about, there's multiple uh, container fabrics. There's there's multiple interactions with external services. Um, 
these are complex systems and therefore we need we, we cannot predict the behavior beforehand so things like chaos engineering allows us to probe that system allows, allows us to to kind of uh, p- push it with a finger if you like and see what happens and then allows us to respond very quickly and that's partly why you see um practices like site reliability engineering from from google sre emerging because we need that kind of effectively those techniques are like having imagine an insect and it's got the big antenna or big uh, big large insect eyes or something like that imagine the organization like an insect it's got these big uh, sensing organs on on the front of the insect and that's what chaos engineering and sre and that kind of thing kind of feel like they're the equivalent of these kind of sense organs for an organization because we need to be able to probe the environment and see what's happening and then respond very quickly and without techniques like chaos engineering and and um and a focus on kind of operational aspects then we're effectively it's like an insect that's blind it's crawling around in in its environment but can't can't sense anything keeps kind of hitting things and, and and not being able to move properly um, so yeah, it's, it's it's a good example of another practice, um, a te- technical practice that that goes well with these exploratory principles like team topologies and DDD and body mapping. Pretty cool. Um, we are we are getting towards the end of the episode, but well, we just open another door here. But I will put the challenge to record another one <laughs> in a different day because it's been very very interesting. Thanks. Um, so one last uh, one last question is: What are the resources that you uh, recommend to the audience so they can continue on this journey that we discuss here today? So we've mentioned domain-driven design. Go and have a look. Uh, that's often called DDD. Go and have a look at that. And um, there's lots of good resources online now. There's an online group called Virtual DDD. Lots of useful activity there. Um, Go and explore Wardley mapping. If you search for Wardley mapping, you'll find all the resources. Uh, lots, lots of uh, lots of free stuff online again to to look at. Lots of examples that people have given. Uh, and we've got a website, teamtopologies.com. You'll find lots of uh, lots of resources we're putting on there: videos, talks, slides, uh, downloadable things. Um, we're we're actually working on um, a workbook at the moment to accompany the Team Topologies book. We're working on that with the publisher, IT Revolution. We're hoping to get that published uh, this year, uh, 2020. We'll see what happens. But that's about kind of uh, helping people to explore um, team-first patterns, team-first ways of working in this kind of pandemic context, so remote-first. So what happens when you're not in the office? What kind of patterns and, and technique can you use to help be effective in an organization with a, with a team-first approach. We've got some resources on the website. If you go to teamtopologies.com slash remote first, then you get a whole load of resources on there um, for that you can uh, that you can download and and, and, and use to, 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 to get going. So, but hopefully that workbook will be out soon. Cool. Thanks. I'm looking forward to it. Very interested in your work and Manuel's work. Uh, and with this, we close the episode. Once again, thanks for your time and to share your knowledge with us. Great. Thanks for inviting me. No problem. See you around. See you. You can find us on Twitter at scraftspodcast. Go to our website, softwarecraftspodcast.com or find our page on LinkedIn. See you next week. <laughs>